Well, we are finishing our series called Burnout. Today we wrap that up, and we have been looking at truths that underlie our feelings of exhaustion and inadequacy. In week one, we explored the mental games that we play on ourselves when we decide to compare ourselves to others. We looked at some healthier ways of goal setting based on where we have been and where we are going as a way to shut down those voices in our head that, uh, and invigorate ourselves with this kind of new uh, confidence. Last week, Pastor Stan did a remarkable job. Were you here last week? My, my goodness, it was incredible. Awesome. Pastor Stan helped us to understand our own wiring and giftedness as a crosswalk community. When he asked this, why this church? And he challenged us to invite three people over the course of this summer each to this service because he is absolutely believing that the world could stand what is being offered in the presence of God by the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ in these walls on Sunday morning. Now, today, we're going to talk about the advantages of being a community together and how this community is a place where asking for help is a highly desired characteristic of our people. And in order to get there, we are going to be looking at the early church in Acts, where Luke describes to us a church that has some very serious problems within the body of believers that in some ways are dividing them and in some ways are very political of them. But we're going to kind of unpack their story and see the unique way that God moves in and through them to re-energize them for the mission of spreading the gospel beyond Jerusalem and into the very ends of the earth. So I would ask you if you have a Bible app or if you have a Bible with you that you turn, to, turn with me to Acts 6. It'll be on the screens in the NIV version. Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to, now watch this verbiage, wait on tables. It's interesting. Interesting verbiage. The Jews in this context were divided over language that they spoke. So the Hellenistic Jews are Greek-speaking Jews, and they have come before the 12 disciples with a complaint against the Hebraic Jews, right? Who speak the old ancient uh, uh, language, the, uh, um, the Aramaic language. And there is a problem that is, that is going down at the family table, right? <laughs> the, he the Hebraic Jews are not feeding the widows, amongst the, of the Greek-speaking Jews. 
And in their wisdom, these disciples, these 12 disciples, determined to address this important matter, but not at the expense of spreading the gospel message. So I want you to take note of that. Not at the expense. In fact, they refreshed the whole team in a way that ensures an even more effective proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Watch what the disciples do here. In verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Now, now did you notice what the disciples, how they handled this matter? They had the people identify their own leaders. And from among the gathered community, empowered them with the responsibility of waiting on tables so that the disciples themselves could remain focused on prayer and continuing their ministries. And watch what happens in verse 5. The proposal pleased the whole group. Wow. Now all of a sudden these warring, uh, politically divided, polemic groups within the church are all pleased. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. Now you've seen similar stuff done right here in Crosswalk, right? When we commission various groups to go off and do things. Most recently, the El Salvador mission team was commissioned. And then verse 7 gives us the outcome. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, Lord, we thank you for the early church. We thank you that it is a still a relevant church for us today, that, that there is so much that we can learn from them. God, we ask that you would search us and speak to us. God, we ask that you would equip us and help us. Who are we that you would be mindful of us, and yet <laughs> you ask us to come to you with our requests? And you promise answers. You promise help. And you promise that in the power of your spirit and through the blood of your son, Jesus, our rescue. So be with us, Lord. Search us. Have us know what you would have us know in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you, church. What does your table service say about God? <laughs> Now, on the one hand, one might immediately look at this church and think, geez, what a, what a hot mess this church is, right? What a, what a disjointed group. They're feuding, and they're kind of cruel with this whole widow thing, right? These poor disciples, uh, they're having to solve all of their basic problems for them. How needy they must have been. How embarrassing that they had to ask for help for something that seems so obvious. And those poor widows... 
They're double marginalized, right? Not only are they uh, Greek-speaking Jews that are trying to fit into an Aramaic Jew context, but now they're not even being fed. Why couldn't they have just come up with the solution of the problem on their own? Good grief. (laughs) But on the other hand, I would submit to you this morning that this is actually an incredibly healthy community. In fact, this is a church that has an important witness for us right here and right now. Why? Because they asked for help. (laughs) And in doing so, they were led by the Spirit in wisdom. Now, in order to get there, I want to talk to you about meals in general. Meal times are important. Meal times are where we share things that we're interested in, right? <laughs> we talk about stuff that is going on in our minds, and, and we learn about the other people who are at the table. We express our feelings, and we kind of get a sense for where people really are and who they really are. You were invited to a luncheon after church day. I hope you will take that in mind. I hope you'll come. I want to be there with you. But there was a communication problem at the mealtime for this community. And that's, that's completely understandable. They spoke different languages. Can you just sit down and have a meal with somebody and, and everything be honky-dory? I don't think so. Different languages. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Arriving at this meal and not being able to communicate is a real issue. Now, let me tell you what this, <laughs> what this reminded me of. One time uh, when our, our oldest daughter, Cambria, who is now living in San Diego, who's graduated San Diego State University, back when she was in high school in Denton where we were church planting, she decided that she wanted to bring a boy home for the first time. Naturally, I cleaned my gun. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I didn't. I don't even have a gun. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was definitely different for us, right? And so this, this guy comes in. Jesse was his name. He was on the high school football team. Now, I was not happy about that. <laughs> you know, so he comes in. And so... I found out very early in my time with Jesse that we were going to have a communication problem because we didn't speak the same language. I spoke Papa, and he did not speak Papa. So I'm like, hi, Jesse, how are you? So I hear that you are a junior in high school. Yep. So, and you play football? Yes. Boy, I really love salad. Yeah. (laughs) Rachel's like, dinner will be uh, just a few minutes away. I'm like, let me help you with that. (laughs) So Rachel and I are standing at the sink, and we're we're washing up to get ready to serve everything out, and and I'm like, oh. And she's like, ugh, I don't like this. And I'm like, you can't even have a conversation. This is so awkward. This is so weird. But the point is, is that we just had a communication problem. We spoke different languages, if you will. That 
was the most awkward hour of my life, and I could not wait for it to be over. But meals are a really important setting for communication and language, which often drives acceptance, right? I mean, the Hellenistic Jews had their work cut out for them. Another thing that is established at mealtime in the uh, family that I came from is hierarchy. Any of you? <laughs> hierarchy. In my family, it kind of worked like this. Anybody knows what a kid's table is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is low man on the totem pole, you know? Like, here is the kid's table. There is the adult's table, right? <laughs> so you have the kid's table. And to something major had to shift for you to get promoted to the adult table, right? <laughs> so I found this out. Like my sister left home, and then there was an open spot. So I finally got my uh, thing at the at my seat at the adult table. But it was only without speaking privileges. You sit there. <laughs> you don't speak. Oh, okay. I was not a, a full-fledged member of the fa a family diners club yet. Well, there was only one thing that was lower than the kids at the kids' table in my context, and that was the outcast. Do you know who I'm talking about? That's someone who's not invited at all, <laughs> as was the case with the Hellenistic Jewish widows. Now, there's one more thing that I have to lift up about these mealtimes and the importance of them for our conversation today, and that it involves that outcast. It involves that person who is shunned. That person, sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a two-way shade-throwing contest. The shunned, those to whom uh, the, the latest episode of throwing shade are intended. My mom was generally the instrument that I used to understand this transaction, this status. Most of the time, it involved one of my sisters. And it would go something like this. Hey, mom, where's Linda? Is she coming to dinner? No, if I saw her right now, I'd wring her neck, she'd say. <laughs> oh, outcast identified. <laughs> and there were some layers to that. So-and-so is not coming because they're so wrapped up in their busy life. Or they're so wrapped in, up in her boyfriend's family that she doesn't have time for hours. Anybody ever heard conversations like these? Or, Yeah. So you have the shunned and the outcast. One time I remember her saying, she has a new boyfriend and her head is so far into his business that we probably won't see her for the next few years. <laughs> now eventually, the ones that cause this scandal, they become the guests at that table. And that's always interesting because then it redefines who consists of the family table. Like I found out very quickly that my sister's older boyfriend got me demoted back to the kids' table. <laughs> Many of my sister's boyfriends survived the test of, of mealtime and became like full-fledged members of our family. In other words, we came to view them as though they were our brothers and sisters. And that was the goal of these Hellenistic Jews for their widows. They wanted them in the clan. So mealtime in our modern families are important. They were in the ancient church as well. 
This idea of family dynamics playing out at a mill set the scene for what is going to happen in Acts. Now, I said this was a healthy community, right? Everything we've discussed so far sounds like a bunch of infighting or dysfunction. But those are the things that you can expect in a typical family to a certain extent. And what makes this one healthy is the fact that they asked for help with their problem. And they ran a risk by doing so. So I have a question for you. Why don't we just ask for help? (laughs) Why? Why don't we just ask for help? When we're sitting in those situations where our fear is heightened, when our insecurities are playing out in our mind and in our hearts, when, we're, when we know that we're addressing situations with a mindset that is scarcity, I don't have enough, I, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy enough, why in those situations don't we ask for help? Well, chances are we don't want to look weak. We don't want to appear less than. The way that sounds in my head is, I don't want to look weak. I don't want people to know how bad it is. I don't want to come across like I don't know or I can't handle it. That was instilled in me very early when I had to depend on somebody for something and it totally sucked. (laughs) You ever been in that boat before? Or you have a strong belief that helping yourself is the only best way to, to, to address the problem or come at the problem. It's a very machismo view. Or I don't want to find myself vulnerable. Have you ever been there where you don't want to be found out? <laughs> if I ask for help, it's being selfish. I feel obligated to help them in return. There's like an economy going on. Or I feel like they have better things to do than help me. You feel like you should be able to handle it independently. You don't want to face the tough realities. And then there's one, oh, I've been really good at this in my life, I don't know about you, where you puff up with pride. I don't want to be perceived as failing. I don't want people to look at me like I'm a failure. I don't, the way that sounds and plays out of my head is I just don't have time to look for help. I don't want to be a burden on them. You ever felt any of those things? You don't want to be a burden to somebody else? Or you believe that you're not the type, right, to need help? Because if, that, if you were the type to need help, then you would have to help somebody back. Or you have this rejection, you have this fear that you're going to ask for help and somebody's just going to flat out say, no, I turn you down. That plays out in my head as, hey, I'm just not that important. Or it won't be done the way that I want it to be done. So I'll have to just redo it. But it leaves you with this sense of kind of worthlessness. Or that you've somehow lost control of the situation if you ask for help. And help isn't in the form that you want it. These are all things. These are all things. But I have some great news to tell you about God. God, 
through the vision and leadership of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, is trying to change us and transform us and turn that fear that we have into courage and trying to turn that insecurity that we have into security and to turn that mindset of scarcity that we so often have when we're looking at having to ask for help and reminding us that God is the God of creation and that because you are in the family of God, you have a source of abundance. <laughs> you know, in this story that we read in Acts, God transformed the fear of the Hellenistic Jews to courage. You want to know how God did it? By providing leadership from within their ranks to wait on tables. How is your table waiting? What is it saying about God? In doing so, the fellowship with the outcast and the oppressed and the shun become possible. Now I'm feeling a little convicted about Jesse. <laughs> and God does this in Jerusalem of all places. But it doesn't stay there because you see the 12 disciples are like, hey, we're not going to put our ministry on hold. What we're going to do is have you tell us who here is wise and filled with the spirit that can wait on tables, that can wait on tables. And they commissioned them. They laid their hands on them and they prayed them. And eventually they know that this is going to move beyond the context of these Hebrews who reside in Jerusalem so that the ministry goes beyond the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. That's God's bigger plan. But why? I'll tell you why. Because God's bigger plan is to build a bridge from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that's what, that's some serious table service. It says a lot about God. God does it with 19 people in this story and a church body. Their status as waiters allows the seven to be the continuation of Jesus' ministry and mission in becoming preachers to the outcasts and to the oppressed. What does their table service say about God? Well, it's becoming more and more clear that God is overcoming the needs. God is overcoming the fears. God is overcoming the insecurities. And God is overcoming their mindset of scarcity. They weren't feeling strong. They were feeling weak. Remember those voices in our head? I don't want to appear weak. I don't want people to know how bad it is. I don't want people to know that I can't handle it. But God showed them that they had all of the resources that they needed around them already. <laughs> there wasn't anything new. They already had them. God had already made sure. And it's that way in our lives. We have resources. And God is going before you if you're in these situations.
God strengthened them. God showed them there are people who can wait on tables here. God strengthened them in leadership and in their ability to even reach beyond Jerusalem into a bigger plan. Why? Because God wanted the good news to reach the ends of the earth. God redeemed their problem and then launched ministry out of it. It was an amazing thing. So many times that can happen for churches. Hope our church is just like that. It has been so many times, and I know it will be. God used people who had discerned where the spirit and wisdom was moving. The gospel message was spread through leaders who had been raised up. And that sounds a lot to me like a lot of you. They thought, are we worthy of being helped? <laughs> are we worthy? Because I'm afraid if I'm going to ask for help, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to have to give something in return. But look how God uses them. So let's talk about help and how that looks on the ground today for us. Recently, this week, a man, Ryan, who used to attend this service, ended his own life. And he's just the last of many, of many who've been in that place. And yet God used a lot of our people, even though Ryan had moved on to other places, other things, many of our people to be agents and ambassadors of Christ in the healing process for Ryan's friends and family. This is a serious situation, this battle of, of evil and the forces, the dark forces that are at work. It's real. And yet God used many of you to go. And I thank you for your table service. I thank you. And sometimes it goes beyond us. Sometimes it's just a matter of being honest with somebody and saying, man, I don't know how to help you personally, but you know who can help you? This trained professional, this counselor, or this doctor, or somebody who God has uniquely gifted to deal with hopelessness in situations like that because this is serious business. It's life or death. But what you can count on is that God is, is working on a resurrection for that. And that we're being called as waiters to help in that. Nobody wants to be perceived as failing. Ryan didn't want to be perceived as failing. The ones who passed before Ryan, they didn't want to be perceived as failing. I'm sure if we could talk to any of them, they would say, I didn't want to be a burden. But let me tell you, I wish to God, I wish to God that I could have helped. And I bet each one of you would say the same. God is reminding us that this isn't a matter of pride. 
And it isn't an either-or answer. It's a both-and <laughs> answer. You're worth helping. If you're in here today and you are in that place, I want you to hear you're worth helping. <laughs> oh, and by the way, there are people beyond all of this, our situation, that also need help. I met with Josh at the Promise House who was telling me about LGBTQ teens right now who are homeless and they're hungry and they're hurting and they are in this place where they are near suicidal. And I can't, I just can't. We have to have our table service be amazing. There is something beyond this room that really, really matters and our hearts need to break for it. Because these people are worth helping. What does your table service say about God? There's a unique thing that you're, you're gifted with, Crosswalk. A unique thing. And it's being able to remind people that they're accepted. Because people get turned down in life. They're in the dining room, and the section's been closed. You ever been in that situation? Oh, my section's closed. Oh, okay, you don't want me. There are people right now in our world, in our vicinity, that are thinking their hearts are hurting, and they're thinking, I'm not that important. Some of us have thought that. Some of us have also thought it won't be done the way that I want it to be done, and I'll just have to redo it all. We have this uh, sense that we're going to somehow lose control. The danger, though, is that stalling can let that situation grow from a problem into a crisis, you know? Recognizing that we need help and asking for it is a, is a characteristic that I want you to hear is valued. <laughs> it was valued for the ancient church. It's valued here. We cannot make it about fears and insecurities and have this mindset of scarcity. We must embrace the lesson that the ancient church gives us and be reminded that God is overcoming <laughs> that. I'm no longer a slave to fear because I am a child of God. And I'm not at the kiddie table. I am at the full-blown, full-fledged table right there with the 12 and the 7. And we're the family of God. We have to have that lesson and let it give us courage and raise up leaders from within our own ranks. Because we're doing something here. We're trying to love all people into a relationship with Jesus Christ together. And have our mindset changed from a mindset of scarcity to abundance. Abundance. That is what God is doing. God is going before us right now, providing us everyone and everything that we will ever need to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. But what church does your table service say about God.
I know it says that you're accepting. I've seen you all redefine over and over who family is in here. I see you all challenging that in love which divides, changing the traditional mindsets and the boundaries that have been set in a, from a mindset of scarcity into a mindset of abundance. And I want to encourage us all in that work. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. Because I want us to be baptizing people in the name of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's our quest to love all, including those who make us feel uncomfortable. Our waiting on tables is how our actions proclaim the word of God so that when we ask someone for help, we do so by the leading of the Spirit in wisdom. It is the bridge that God is using to build and reach beyond ourselves and winning the world for Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, that you say you're overcoming. That you say that you have power and you have control and that you're providing a way. God, if there's anyone sitting here amongst us, would you help us to invite them to the table? Would you help us, God, to do that well? Would you give us an awareness of that person? Would you give us and implant in us a deep desire and a broken heart for that person? God, would you make our table service say that you are a God who overcomes and who provides and who transforms fear into courage, insecurity into security? that we may know the abundance of life in your son, Jesus. <laughs> Would you help us do that? We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.